Welcome to the Abide Podcast, where our goal is helping others delight in Christ for the sake of becoming more like Christ with the hope of multiplying disciples of Christ. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to episode four of our Story of the Bible series. And if this is your first time joining us, my name is Laura Tungate. I'm the host of the Abide podcast. And for episode number four, I have Jonathan Brennick joining us. He has been on the podcast before um, in the very first season, talking through the Abide Bible study method. And he is now coming back as a official staff member, a part of the residency staff at Coastal Community Church. So how does that feel to be employed? It, wow. It feels great <laughs> to be employed. Let me tell you. i super excited to be on the residency staff. I think it's um, really cool. It's cool to see how God has kind of like unfolded this um, in my life. Could not be more excited to see what uh, the future has and where God's taking me. But Definitely excited to be here on staff and here on this podcast. Yeah, well, I'm excited to have you. And you're jumping in um, at a very interesting point in our conversation. So this series is about the story of the Bible. And this is episode number four. And guess how much we've covered? (laughs) Based on how you prepared me for this, I would say that you have only managed to cover Genesis. That's true. Uh, Yeah, three episodes um, introducing the series and spending two whole episodes on the book of Genesis, but that's okay. I feel like Genesis is a pretty good It is a good one. It's hard to go wrong. Yeah, there's a lot that kind of happens there. A (laughs) lot to unpack. Um, But with that said, we're going to be jumping into a larger portion of scripture than we've been talking about so far. So we're going to cover a bit more history. We are picking up after we left off last time with Israel and Egypt. And we're going to be covering the books Exodus through Deuteronomy with a focus on how God's love and glory are displayed through specifically two avenues. Um, So the event of the Exodus is, is one focus of our conversation. And then the law is the second part of our conversation. And so What I mean by the law, um, I kind of want to define that, I guess, for you. Um, Good call. Because when people refer to the law, they can kind of be referring to two different things. Um, So people commonly refer to the first five books of the Bible as the law because the first five books is called the Torah in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, Torah translated in English literally means law, which is why they call it. That makes sense. The law. Makes a lot of sense there. Um, but the reason why it's the referred to as the law is because this is where we see um, the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, if you are familiar with the Bible or with Christianity in general, you'll know there was a lot of rules that God gave the Israelite people and laws to follow. I believe 613 is a number that has been thrown out there as to how many there were. And we are going to read all of them (laughs) right now. Here we go. Buckle up. (laughs) Number one. (laughs) I couldn't even tell you what's the first one. I don't know. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, that's the Ten Commandments. That's like... That's one of the laws. Well, yeah, but is it the first one? Is it the first of all the laws? I guess that would make sense. That is. You're right. All right. I should have known that one. That's on me. That's on me. Wow. Um, So 
that's why it's traditionally referred to, the first five books are traditionally mm, traditionally referred to as the law. However, I think it's interesting that we actually don't see a single law until 69 chapters into the Torah. Um, And so the whole entire book of Genesis is, there's no laws in it. Half of, no rules, everyone is lawless. (laughs) No, the first part of Exodus doesn't have any uh like laws in it it's it's really a story and and the um, book of genesis is really a story and so i think it's there's a misconception i think about the first five books of the bible that if you read them you're just it's essentially like reading a law book sure and it's not because the first five books really should be understood within its narrative framework Mm. um Genesis through Deuteronomy is a narrative with laws embedded in it. So I kind of want to set up the story of specifically Exodus through Deuteronomy since we've already gone pretty in depth (laughs) in Genesis. Um, So I want to kind of talk about um, what is happening in the history of Israel at this point in time. So a really quick like bird's eye view before we dive a little bit deeper. Um, we left off last week with the family of Jacob and his sons and they're in Egypt and they begin to multiply and a new Pharaoh comes into power and um, enslaves them. And so they're enslaved in Egypt and Exodus covers the Israelites deliverance from Egypt. You have them coming to Mount Sinai where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And then from Mount Sinai, they have their the famous wilderness wanderings. Honestly, once they leave Mount Sinai, um, that's where they spend 39 of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then they get to the plains of Moab at a, at a place called the Transjordan, where they are going to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So that's kind of like the history chronologically of what is happening at this point in time. Our conversation is going to focus mainly on the event of the Exodus and the law, and specifically how we see God's love and his glory displayed throughout these books. So let's talk about the event of the Exodus and how we see God's love and his glory displayed there. So Jonathan, why don't you kind of walk us through the Exodus and um, any points that you want to make along the way about you know, how God's love and glory is displayed through this. Sure. All right. So the story of the Exodus actually starts with one guy. That guy's name is Moses. Mm-hmm. And God basically, to make the story short, God calls Moses to save the Israelites after the Israelites cry out to God. Mm-hmm. The Israelites cry out, say, hey, God, save us. We can't do this. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. God says, all right, Moses, this is on you. Moses is like, well, hey, wait a second. <laughs> I am not qualified for this. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so Moses pushes back a lot. God, of course, is the savior of Israel in this, but he's using Moses as his vessel to, to bring the Israelites out of slavery. Mm-hmm. Moses not super big into it, but eventually, um, with the help of his brother, he goes to kind of make this declaration before Pharaoh of, Hey, Mm -hmm. like God told me to tell you, let, let people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. (laughs) Um, Pharaoh naturally not interested. And so then we get this whole great, really series of unfortunate events where, (laughs) uh, Pharaoh says, no, you can't go. And then there's a plague. And then, Moses is like, okay, what about now? Pharaoh's like, uh, no. 
then there's a second plague, and mm-hmm. then a third, and then a fourth, and then all the way to the tenth plague, yep. if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. which is when um, all of the firstborn in Egypt die. And it is very That's severe and intense, Yeah, um, which really just goes to show the lengths that God is willing to go to to uh, rescue as, as his people. Yeah. Um, and so, and of course... Even in that, though, I think you see a lot of God's grace because God said, hey, this is going to happen. Here's how you can avoid it. He said, hey, put the blood of a lamb on your doorstep Mm -hmm. and this will not happen to you. He gave, he told everyone how to avoid this situation in his grace. Justly, he he did not need to give them Mm -hmm. that caveat or that grace or that mercy. But he said, hey, do this and and live, basically. And then the firstborns all passed away. Um, and then finally, Pharaoh was like, okay, you can go. So Moses is like, great, let's get the gang in the van and drive mm-hmm. away. So they run away. Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, wait a second. That's dumb. I want my slaves back. So he chases after them. Then there's the whole deal where God parts the Red Sea. All the Israelites walk through it. And then the waves come crashing back. And then all the all of Pharaoh's people drown mm-hmm. or die, whatever. Um, and then... That's most of, that's the event of the actual exodus. And then you get into they're in the wilderness. Right. Looking back on the exodus, like where are the certain points? And I think you kind of mentioned some already of where we see God's love and his glory displayed the greatest. Yeah. Great question. I think the one for me that always stands out the most is just the fact that God uses Moses. Mm. Like Moses is a broken person he murdered somebody um his life is not together nor is his his heart together he's Mm -hmm. like hey like this sounds great god but like i don't want to do it right but god chooses moses and there's a quote by charles spurgeon let me see if i can uh read it real quick yeah it says when god has the choice of weapons and he always has he chooses the weaker weapon that he may get to himself the greater renown my brethren glory in your infirmities thank god for your weakness mm. and that quote gives me chills because yeah. that's what god did here god chose the the weakest weapon this guy who murdered someone fled was living away was not was not really a part of of god's people god chose him used him as the weaker weapon to get glory for himself if god had chosen someone else someone who was more eloquently spoken who was more charismatic maybe that person could have convinced Pharaoh in his own right Mm -hmm. to let the people go. That would have taken a lot of convincing, but were Moses not the... uh, Instrument that he, that God chose. Yeah, this weak instrument, then some of that glory would have gone to Moses. Yeah. Like, and so God chose this horribly weak man to bring about something that only he could bring about. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's just so beautiful and so reflective in our lives that Mm. Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness. There's another Charles Spurgeon quote just off the top of my head where Mm -hmm. he says, "Um, Christ does not need your strength. He has more than enough on his own. He does need your weakness for he has none of that. And that quote kills me because I like to think of my life as, okay, what am I good at? What, how best can I, Mm -hmm. um, how best can I do things? Which is good. Like, I think we need to play to our strengths. Like, I'm not saying, like, just look at everything you're bad at and do that. Like, that would just be a nightmare of a situation. Play to horrible. your strengths. But how much glory does God get 
when you look at what's going on in your life and say, hey, there's no way I can do this without you. Mm. Like, I cannot. Like, that's what Moses was like. He's right. like, hey, I cannot do this. Yeah. And God's like, hey, well, I know you can't, but I can. Mm-hmm. We're going. And then, and so that, that to me is just not only a representation of God glorifying and magnifying himself for the sake of saving people because he was made glorified and magnified in Moses, but it also shows his immense love for specifically in this case, Moses, where Moses was this guy who really probably in his mind was never going to go back to Egypt because he, he fled from his sins and his mistakes, didn't want to go back, didn't want that redemption necessarily. Mm. Um, but God said, hey, I'm choosing you because I love you, not yeah. because of what you've done, but because of who I am. Yeah. And that to me, that, that is my favorite example and probably in all of Exodus of God just showing both his love and his glory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that there's a lot of stigma around people in the Bible and we feel like we can't come like measure up to them because like they're, you know, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Like he led the Israelites out of Egypt, like all of these things. And it's like, actually, no, Moses really wasn't that great of a dude. Like (laughs) he kind of sucked sometimes, Um, but it was all God. And so I think that like we can look at stories like this and, and think to ourselves, man, I wish I could measure up to Moses, but it's like, why, why would you want to measure up to Moses? He's not doing anything. It's all God displaying his glory. I think also something to note is when the Israelites get to the Red Sea and, and, and the Pharaoh's armies behind them and they get to a point where they want to go back. Yes, they want to so go back to Egypt to their to their chains to their enslavement, and this is what it says in Exodus fourteen, verse eleven. It says, "What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may mm. serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." And this is Moses's response. He says, "The Lord will fight for you." And you have only to be silent. Mm. And then he like does the whole thing and God splits the sea and they walk across on dry land and whatnot. And after that, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. I mean, what a great display of God's glory. Oh, yeah. And love right there that... His people, he just he just saved them. He just delivered them out of the hands of their worst oppressor for yeah. 400 years. And they saw these plagues. They saw the power of God and the yeah. just the, the infinite glory and power of this God. And then they said, take us back. And they said, just kidding. We want to go back. We don't, we don't trust you, actually. Just kidding. Um, How heartbreaking is that? Yeah. I think that says a lot about the nature of our humanness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's real easy to look at them and say, oh, you idiots. God <laughs> saved you from the bondage of the the mm-hmm. uh, Egyptians. Why on earth do you keep trying to go back to that? Yeah. But then you look at us and, and we are saved from the bondage of sin. Yeah. Yet still, we're like, oh, but like I would prefer that. You right. know, like I, I right. value this sin over my relationship with God or, oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm fine where I'm at. Like we, we just, we're the exact same. Yeah. The exact same. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and then we see what God does even past that, his provision for them 
is highlighted um, in, in leading up to Sinai and even after Sinai, how you know, he provides food for them. He provides water for them. He um, provides navigation and guidance, you know, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, like he yeah. provides protection of them. He provides everything that they need and they get to Sinai. Um, they stay at Sinai for a year and at Sinai is where they get the Ten Commandments. They get instructions on how to make the tabernacle. They get the holiness codes. They get everything we see in Leviticus. Um, but that I know is at least what they get at Sinai. Sure. The biggest thing to talk about here is the Mosaic Covenant. In chapter 19, it says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Um, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Mosaic Covenant is in, is interesting. It's different than the other covenants we see in the Bible because it's the only one that's conditional. Deuteronomy 28 lays out, hey, these are the blessings that you're going to get for obedience. These are the curses you're going to get for disobedience. Um, and so the Mosaic Covenant is really establishing this relationship between God and his people and how his people should act solely because they're his people. Mm, yeah. The whole premise of the book of Leviticus is God is a holy God and therefore his people need to be holy people. And this is how holy set apart people act. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he really uses, God really uses, um, you know, a lot of Leviticus and, and these rules, like you said, to set them apart, not only for this, the Israelites' sake, but also for God's sake, because he's setting himself apart as the one true God. He, he is setting himself apart to be glorified most, which is, again, like you said, your whole thesis statement mm-hmm. is... is about God's love and his glory by setting the the laws that God gives I think are also very um, directional towards his love and his glory because I think you see some laws like for example what I've heard is um, the law for them to not eat pork Mm -hmm. is really because they didn't have the proper way to cook pork to make it clean enough for them to eat without getting diseases and sicknesses and so in that example you see the love of god because Mm. they didn't understand maybe they looked at a pig and said wow i would really love to eat this (laughs) for whatever reason um but god looked at it and said hey the technology is not there yet don't Mm. eat that bad idea yeah and then on the other side you also see him set that apart like you said Mm -hmm. as a holy people to point towards his own glory because he alone is the salvation Mm -hmm. of the world and he through Christ will come and save people. And so he points towards himself as the one true God for the sake of first for the Israelites, for them to know your God is the only God worth serving, Mm -hmm. but also for the other people to see, Hey, our God is garbage. Like he's, he's not real. Like Mm -hmm. these are idols that we've made with our hands who cannot save us, but their God, their God is real. Their God is saving them. And and Mm -hmm. so the law, I think really in its totality serves to, uh, show the love of God and glory of God in different and in the same ways. Yeah. Well, and I think also something that I mentioned, I think a couple of episodes ago, I'm not sure which one, but I mentioned this previously about how the first five books really help establish Israel as, like you said, a set apart nation because 
they are going to be going into this promised land that is full of other nations with other gods. And it's essentially God saying, hey, this is who you are. You are my people. You get your origin from me. This is how my people act. This is, you know, it's like God is is establishing a new way of governing that they had never experienced before. It's a new way of dealing with things. It's a new way of bringing justice to things. It's a new way of, of just living in general um, that they have never really experienced before because they've been surrounded by all of these pagan nations. And so this is a way of God establishing, hey, if you're going to be my people, you're going to be set apart, you're going to live differently than all of these other nations. Yeah, and I think what's really beautiful in that too is he is not setting them apart just to be... Uh, like capricious and have his own like ways. Like he, right. when God is setting apart these people, it is not just because he wants to be different. He wants mm. them to be holy and everything he does is for their good and his glory. Mm-hmm. Like God is working. Roman says God is working all things out for the good of those who love him. Like his, his commands. It's easy to look at some of those commands and be like, okay, God, you know, like, God just didn't want them to do mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. But like there's there's intentionality and reasons and justification behind it. And it's not just God is a fickle God who just decided one day, hey, you know what? I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to eat pig. I don't want you. Like there, there's, there is a lot of that where it's, it's God using the law for the sake of they're good. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's kind of a, a hard thing to wrap our minds around. And it's, it's for the good of the Israelites, for the good of those around them. Um, and it's for God's glory, and those aren't those aren't separate. Right. Like it's all together. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, you can't separate the idea of God's working all things out for our good and His glory. Like His glory is our good. Yeah. Like you have to marry those ideas together. Yeah, for sure. And I also think it's important to note that this the law was given to a specific people in a specific context, right? Yes. Um, it was for the Israelites and it's easy to look at the law and look at these 613 rules they have to follow, certain sacrifices they have to do every year and all of these things and think, hmm, so I have to work in order to make sure God is pleased with me. Yeah, right. Like the, the even in the point of the law, the point was not to somehow save the people by good works. God has never been a God of... Mm-hmm. Um, hey, do enough good things, sacrifice enough things, and then you'll get salvation. But it's to point them towards the all-satisfying nature of Christ. Everything in the Bible either points to or points from Christ. And so people talk about the threefold purpose of the law. And one of them is it tells us what is you know pleasing and honoring to God. Um, I think with that, there's a lot of nuance, right? For example, like God commanded sacrifice in the Old Testament to show them one of the other purposes of the law, which is to be a mirror of our sin and God's holiness. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a huge, unmistakable part of the law. Yeah. But uh, it shows us what's pleasing to God. But again, there's nuance because in the Old Testament, God demanded sacrifice. In the New Testament, we've got Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then also, I think in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, uh, 3 and 4. But in these, sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's... So that's just like an example. Like the, the law tells us what is pleasing to God. There's nuance in that um, because he doesn't delight in the blood of bulls. Um, but that law for those people at that time was a reflection of 
the fact that they are helplessly broken and in desperate need of a savior and that savior and that sacrifice pointed towards Christ. And then there's also right. to mention the third point, the, the third point of the law is, is literally, it's just like restraining evil. Like when you have consequences of, uh, consequences for things like murder, you're restraining evil because then hopefully someone's going to think, Oh shoot, do I want to murder this person? Cause the consequence of that is death. <laughs> do I want to die? So hmm. there's, there's that law too, but really, Objectively, it's it's that mirror of um, our lack of holiness and our desperate need for something to atone for our sins, and then it's a reflection of God's holiness and that standard of perfection that we cannot hope to achieve, but that Christ has already achieved for us on the cross. Yeah. I also think when we're talking about the law, who better to describe the purpose and the ultimate, like, heart behind the law than Jesus himself. It's true. Right? When uh, when the Pharisees are asking him, well, what's the greatest commandment? And what does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He actually quotes the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6. I think I've mentioned that before on a previous podcast. Um, but that's something that the Israelites would kind of repeat to themselves. It was like a song for mm. them. Um, and so love the Lord your God with all of your being is what he says. This is the greatest commandment. This is the heartbeat. This is the fuel for everything else that the law says. And he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus actually goes to extend that further in John when he tells us to love each other as I have loved you, you know, I mean, just me personally, I have a hard time loving myself sometimes. Mm. Um, but the way Jesus loves me is with perfect love. And, um, and so what we see about the law, looking from the perspective and the lens of Jesus and how he talks about the law is that the law is really made to produce people of faith who love God and love others. Like that is at its heart. That's what it is. Yeah. And that's why Christ was so uh, critical of the Pharisees is because they Mm -hmm. took the law into something that it wasn't. And the point of the law was not for it to be a set of rules and regulations that were just necessary to follow. That's, of course, legalism, which is just a sick and twisted lie. Yeah. Um, But the point of the law was Mm -hmm. for to to help you love God and love others. Yeah. And that was that was the direction and the objective of the law was was this love for God and love for others. Like you cannot put it really yeah. any other way than that. And that's what the Pharisees so heartbreakingly missed in all of it. Right. Is is they didn't realize um well, they didn't realize that the that the law was meant to point you to love God and love others. Like they thought the point of the law was I need to uphold this yeah. perfectly. And so so that I don't break any of these rules, I'm going to make sure that I put a little bit more parameters around them so I don't even get near breaking these rules. Yeah, That was their mindset. Um, but Jesus completely turns that on its head, and he says, actually, no, like, just love God and, and love others. Um, and I think also just in this in the context of the ancient Near East and, and where the, the Israelites were at at this point, no other nation in the world loved God and they did a really horrible job at loving others. Yeah, true. 
So even that in and of itself in the context that they were at, like that was a new way of even thinking about life in general. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So spent a lot of time talking about what the law is, what its purpose is. Um, why is it so important for us to understand the law? Like how do we, how are we supposed to interact with the sure. law? Yeah, and I think I would go back to talking about kind of like the, the threefold purpose of the law is I think first and foremost, like the law helps us recognize our own brokenness and sinfulness uh, and depravity and shortcomings. And I think um, one of my um, favorite times in the New Testament is Paul talks about this and he says, um, basically he's just listing off this just list of bad people, right? Like the the scum of the earth, the, you know, sexually immoral, the murderers, the liars, the thieves, and he just goes on and on. And then after that, he says, and such were some of you, mm-hmm. or such were you guys before you came to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, like, mm-hmm. just the idea of, like, like the, the law and these commandments of God, both New and Old Testament, show us how short we fall, and we fall so short. And, and I think that that is so hard for us to grasp because we think that we somehow deserve um, or have been good enough to earn the mercy and love of God. Mm. Um, and, and just looking at the law, new and old, um, is just so humbling because you just recognize like you cannot save yourself. The Israelites could not save themselves. We cannot save ourselves. And so ultimately the law points to Christ as the, the uh, satisfier, Right. of the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. And, and he fulfilled it in a way that none of us ever could because of his love, his unconditional love for us. I think it's easy. Uh, and this is where the Pharisees went wrong is the Pharisees looked at the law and said, oh, this is how we earn the conditional love of God. Mm-hmm. If we are good enough, if we meet the conditions, then God will love us and then mm-hmm. we will be saved. But Christ says, no, no, no. The love is unconditional because if it were conditional, you there'd be no hope for anybody. Yeah. Like there's straight up game over for every single one of you. Mm-hmm. But he give, he shows us for no apparent reason, I could say, this love and mercy and grace that we do not deserve out of his own heart and out of his love for us and his, his desire to make himself known. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's just one of the reasons um, why it's important for us to know the law is just to just to meditate. I think we could do a lot of good. This is going to sound weird. I think we could do a lot of good to meditate on our own brokenness and our own depravity because it's really once yeah. you realize how broken and short we fall, that's when we glorify God most. I've heard it explained one time where, Laura, if I said, hey, you're getting a little sunburn, better get out of the sun. And I like, you know, pushed you or I put up, up an umbrella. Mm-hmm. You might be like, thanks, Jonathan. That was great. I kind of appreciate it. But if you're dying in a burning building and I reach in and pull you out, you're going to be so much more grateful and appreciative of what I've done mm-hmm. um, because you know what you've been saved from. Mm. And so the same way with our sin, if we just see ourselves as um, like, yeah, like we screw up, but like, you know, it's not that bad. Yeah. Like at least I'm not murdering people or at least right. I'm not doing this. Like if, if we justify our sin in any way, instead of looking at it as it actually is, R.C. Sproul says that every act of sin or every sin is an act of cosmic treason against the God of the universe. If, if we view our sin in a proper light, it will first, it will bring us to our knees because our sin is just so wicked and we cannot even fully comprehend how wicked it is. Right. But it will also let us rely more fully on our savior and 
praise God for mm. his goodness because yeah. we are finally or more really seeing just what our sin means. Yeah. And it's not good. Yeah. So. Right. I'm reminded of a quote and I completely cannot remember for the life of me who said it. Um, but it's that if you view, uh, if, if you view yourself as a little sinner, you'll inevitably view Jesus as a little savior. Yes. That's Martin Luther actually. Well, there you go. The man himself. Martin Luther. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think every, I, you said it great. I have nothing else to say. No. Um, I, I also think like it's just practically when we're reading the Bible, we hear a lot of references to the law um, yeah. in in both Old and New Testament and how you, you know, you referenced in Matthew when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. All these things. What is he, what is Jesus fulfilling? You know, all of these things. We won't understand that if we don't understand the law and if we don't understand the purpose of the law. Um yeah. And so I think just understanding the nature of why it was given, who it was given to, what its purpose was, um, will help us understand the rest of our Bible and the New Testament and honestly Jesus more. Yeah. And I also think knowing all 613 of the specific <laughs> laws is not really going to help you. No, to be no, honest. no. Like no. it might be cool fun facts for you to throw out at parties. You mean you don't have all 613 memorized? Not wow. Yet. I'm working on it. Wow. Give, me, give me a day or two. I'll get it. Um, <laughs> That's not really going to help you, but knowing the, and I'll say that's not going to help you because most of it was for the Israelites at that time, right? right? Like you can break the law down into right. three separate parts. Um, there's like the, what is it? The civil, civil ceremonial, and, and moral. moral. Yeah. We do not follow ceremonial because that sacrifices and Christ right. is our ultimate sacrifice. We don't follow civil because we are not ancient Israelites. We do follow, follow moral and those are mostly reaffirmed in the New Testament, if yes. not completely yes. reaffirmed the new testament but it's knowing the heart behind it right? right like and that goes back to what christ said is mm -hmm. he said hey the point of the law is to love god and love others and so when we understand that the the fullness of the law first is for us to love god and love others and then there, there's still um when the laws themselves might not apply to us the principles behind them still yes. do like we are still called to be holy as he yes. is holy like we are still called to live in a righteous manner. We have to wrestle with the fact that we will never be righteous right. except for the fact that we are clothed with right. Christ's righteousness, mm -hmm. but we are still called to this um, this, this higher level of, of living and loving, really. Mm. Um, th and that's what I think you see in the law is you have to look past the 613 laws telling you don't eat this and don't wear this mm -hmm. and stuff like that and look to the heart of the law, which is what Christ points to, is just loving God, loving others, and, and being holy. And just really, um, I don't know who came up with this idea, but it's like the idea that like we were designed to uh, enjoy God and glorify Him. Mm -hmm. And so that's the point of the law. The point of the law is not rules to tie you down and weigh you down. The point of the law is to help us enjoy God and glorify Him. Yeah, for sure. And to the point of, like, of Christ fulfilling the law and everything like that, um, kind of ties back into the Mosaic law being the only conditional covenant mm. um, because, you know, it says that if you obey my commandments and walk in my statutes and all these things, then you will be my treasured people. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's like the condition, right? And so 
Jesus comes and he perfectly fulfills the law, thus fulfilling all of the conditions of the covenant, thus Mm. ushering in all of the blessings and the promises of God. And so um, this is something that, like, I'm going to say, but, like, we could talk about it for forever. (laughs) Um, But, you know, how we say salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, right? It doesn't... it's not about your works, and that's very true. It's not about your works because there was a work done mm. for you, uh, and it was Christ. Yeah. It was yeah. Him, perfectly not just perfectly fulfilling the law, um, but being the ultimate sacrifice, overcoming death, resurrecting, and offering all of that to us. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, and so I think the last point that that we can end on here is just um, if you are reading any point of, of the Torah, of the first five books of the Bible, um, being able to read it with this lens of how does this point to Christ? How is this foreshadowing to Christ? Um, just reading that and honestly reading the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament through the Jesus lens, honestly, is going to be sure. your best bet. Um, but I think like it's easy for us to get bogged down when we're reading, especially when we get into Leviticus and Numbers and when there's and Deuteronomy too, when there's just like laws upon laws upon laws mm-hmm. and you're like, ah, oh, this is too much. Um, being able to read that with this kind of uh, 30,000 foot view of, okay, this is the purpose and the intention behind the law and this is the heart behind it. Um, I think that's how we can get the most out of this section of the Bible when we're reading it personally and studying it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a lot. That was a lot, a lot covered. <laughs> um, and I'm sure, you know, we probably rambled about certain topics what? and us? You know, it just happens. Rambling? No. <laughs> um, we would never ramble. <laughs> um, but that is in, I don't know how long this has been, somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes, hopefully. Um, uh, that Hopefully that gives a little bit of insight into uh, the Torah as a whole, but also, you know, the event of the Exodus, the law, um, and how that fits within the story of the Bible and how it all points to Christ. Um, so next week, Jonathan's going to join us again, and we're yes. going to be covering an even bigger chunk um, of the Bible. Uh, yeah, we're going to cover the entire history of Israel next week. Oh, the whole thing. Literally the whole thing. Um, so we're talking uh, Joshua through Esther. That is the books that we're covering. Um, so yeah, buckle up, get prepared. We're gonna, Party it's hard. gonna be amazing. <laughs> so uh, we will see you guys next week for that conversation.